Here we go. Hey there, folks. This is your host, Cameron Ivey of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, my friend and co-host, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe, how are you doing? It's Friday. It's Friday. It is Friday. I'm doing all right on a Friday. How are you doing? I'm doing. I'm doing. I'm getting there. I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited because we have uh, a reoccurring guest um, that you guys wouldn't know about, but (laughs) that's an inside joke on our part. (laughs) But I'd like to welcome... (laughs) I'd like to welcome Nishat Bajario. Uh, he is the author of and privacy architect and strategy at Uber. Nishant, welcome on. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so let's let's dive into this. Uh, there's a lot that we want to cover, but let's go ahead and just uh, open the floor with you telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, your journey of getting to Uber and your book. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you for having me on your show. My, my name is Nishant. I'm a recovering engineer, product manager, debater, and I somehow managed to get myself lost in the worlds of privacy. And uh, yes, I am here to sell a book. I, I'm writing a book about how you build privacy into your teams, into your company, your automation, your design, your culture, making sure that you don't become tomorrow's bad headline. How do you build the right things, build the right culture, the right tools to ensure that customer data gets handled correctly? What often happens is you end up in the situation where you've grown like crazy. You have a ton of customers, you have a seed money coming in, but you don't know what to do from a privacy perspective. And you have to get the story right because otherwise the regulators, the VCs look the other way. So how do you come up with the right skills, the right hands-on techniques and tools? And that's what this book is about. It's aimed to educate, it's aimed to empower. And as far as my journey is concerned, I got there because I learned the lessons the hard way. I made some of those mistakes. I learned from some of the best people in the industry. I was in a bunch of good companies, have a bunch of good mentors. So this is the sum total of lessons learned over the last 10 years with me and a whole bunch of other people in a 250, 275 page book that'll help people become better. So that's my journey in the book in one little answer. Awesome. Gabe, did you want to dive in? That's a, that's a, a rich background. I, I think for me, diving into your background is so many places I can. You mentioned something in there though, that popped that at me for a second, recovering debater. Now, was that, was that the product management side of you? Or just, just good old fashioned debate. <laughs> It's <laughs> a great uh, observation, Gabe. So when I came to the U.S. in 2000, I went to a small school in Missouri, or Missouri as we call it in that part of town. If you're not in St. Louis or Kansas City, you're in Missouri. If you're in the big cities, you're in Missouri. So there's a little uh, insight. So. <laughs> State, right? And I loved my time there. And, uh, you know, people often talk about the Midwest as flyover country, but I left the Midwest in 2004, but a part of my heart still belongs there. Because when I came to this country, I was I could have just been called another engineer, somebody else who could write code. Instead, I also went to the policy division to get a job with the policy professor because I was genuinely interested in public policy. And we had papers published in conferences there, besides having a career on the side as an engineer. Concurrently, I was also in the debate team and I was participating. I was in uh, debate itself, in elocution, in uh, impromptu speaking, in humorous speeches and whatnot. And getting to see this country in this big van that we used to have in a group of like 12 or 15 people and the debate coach would drive. And you literally get to see the country. You get to see the people. You understand them for who they are. And if you want to bring people to where you want them to be, you first have to go to where they are. And I literally went. I went to rural Kansas. I went to rural Kentucky, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Nice restaurants downtown there. Went to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota. Went to upstate New York. Been to San Diego. Every part of this beautiful country you can think of, I saw. And this was just as a teenager with very little money in my pocket. And coming back to my journey as an engineer, as a product manager, I felt like I was better at selling my ideas, empathizing with other people's ideas, 
because I'd had those early experiences when a lot of my fellow engineers were very certain that they had the right answers because all they had to debate with was a computer screen, I was talking to real people and their real concerns. So this book is about those real people, their data, their dreams, their expectation of respect and privacy. So I typically see myself as sitting inside a big company, advocating for the folks on the outside who don't often get to take a peek inside and see what happens behind those big servers, those ML algorithms, those models, and those SQL queries. So I'm essentially the combination, I'm the connecting tissue between the real world and the virtual world. And that's a great place for me to be. So it all started back in that van, somewhere in those trips between Jefferson City and Iowa City. That sounds fabulously interesting. I've uh, not spent a lot of time in that part of the country, but I, I too have heard that the, the term flyover state more often. Not I understand why it gets that moniker, but it is it is a nice part of the, the, the country. It is sure. a very nice part. Yeah. Some of the kindest people I've met in the world are from the Midwest. I, I miss that part every single day. It's, it sucks to not be able to go back because it's not on the way to any place. And right. my job, my travels <laughs> for my job take me to New York. They take me to DC. They take me to Brussels. They take me to Amsterdam. <clears throat> I hope they take me to St. Louis sometime soon because, like I said, I have a ton of friends there. I've got some great friends in St. Louis I haven't seen in a while. Hello to my St. Louis friends out there. <laughs> However, I mean, people in New York are practically just as nice as those in the Midwest, though, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah. New York is wonderful, too. My goodness, I've never felt happier. You know, when I finished my undergrad degree in 2003, my dad came and visited me from Mumbai, and we got on one of those double-decker buses to see yep. New York, right? And we got off at Times Square because he always wanted to go to Times Square as a kid. Right. And when we got off Times Square, it was roughly 5.30 p.m. So it was just starting to get dark. The lights were coming on. And I promised him with all the pomposity and confidence a young person can have saying, one day I'll work for a company that has its stock ticker on the New York, the NASDAQ exchange. And that was a big deal at the time because in Missouri, we didn't have a single company of that stature come and interview candidates unless sure. you went to Washington University of St. Louis, which I didn't. So... For me, getting into Intel at, in 2005 was a pretty big deal. Then getting into Nike was a big deal. Getting into Netflix was a big deal. So the career biography often builds based on dreams and aspirations you have pretty early on. But New York has this amazing energy where I, could have, I couldn't have had that iconic dream for myself in many other cities in the world. But New York has this amazing energy where everything is possible. So my heart broke last April when New York had those horror stories about COVID being so bad. Mm -hmm. And when people tell me New York is dead or New York ain't coming back, I'm like, ah, it'll, it'll be back. This city's seen worse. It's come back from 9-11, from the Great Depression. A year from now, hopefully COVID will be gone. It'll be sort of in this, where, what, where, what are they doing now? Session. Remember how people talk about what happened to those famous people? Right. COVID's going to be like that story that New York's going to kick in the butt. But yeah, New York is around the place I want to go to again soon. So we're like sitting here in our living rooms talking about this podcast and privacy, but we're talking about New York as well. That's how amazing the energy is, right? It is. It is. I spent uh, a little over two and a half decades there, and I do miss it oftentimes. Let me real quick rewind uh, the, to something else that you said uh, a little bit ago. You're talking about going and meeting people where they're at and really kind of making, the, make, making it personal. Um, and I think you mentioned in there, you know, in your in your work as well too. You you try to make that very personal, their data, et cetera. How do you translate that to an engineer? How do you get an engineer sitting at a keyboard who is otherwise somewhat removed in that moment from another human being? It's just him and his code, her and her code. How do you make it personal for them? How do you make their work protecting the privacy of these individuals personal? So you start with data and then you end with, you start with data and reason and then you end with emotion is kind of my general principle here. So you don't make it personal right off the bat. You first go with data and metrics, right? You first want to make the argument about how much data are you collecting? And, you know, I've used iconography, like if we were to take all of our data and stack it up, you could go to the sun and come back. Like that imagery really helps or it fills the library of Congress or look how much money we are paying cloud vendor, whatever that they may happen to be not going to make any names here, but can we as a company afford to be spending this much data? Or you bring open another use case where if I look at the data from this perspective, I could come up with an answer, yes. Or if I look at the data from a different perspective, the answer is no. So you make it make sense to them with data from their perspective. Here's how having this much data hurts you. Or if you are especially scared about a breach, how would you feel if this data ends up getting breached and instead of losing 10 million records, you lost 25 million? If you were smart about not keeping data that you didn't need anyways, 
you would not have suffered as much with this breach. It's a bit like, you know, the argument where if you weren't going so fast, your car would never run into that accident, right? You could have still had an accident anyways, but that speed made the intensity and the impact that much worse. So you first start with contextual time-sensitive data and you make the argument that way. And then you make it personal where in the sense where how would you feel if it was your mom or your dad or your partner whose data was getting mishandled, right? But you need to that you need for that to be the closing argument. That cannot be the opening argument because if emotion and personalization is your opening argument, you run the risk of losing the punch. You run you if you overuse a weapon, the sharpness of the edge goes away. So what I've learned from the engineers is you start with making it very contextual, very data centric, and then you build that relationship. You get some small wins. You come with the incremental demonstrations of effectiveness. You, for example, there are instances when you demonstrate that deleting data saved a ton of money in terms of storage costs. That enabled them to add one more headcount, which enabled them to do this other project that was blocked for two quarters, right? So you show those wins, and then you make the emotional argument at the end. So that's been effective for me, but people who are listening might have other ideas too. So I also want to go back when you were talking about your story. By the way, sounds like HBO, we need to get in touch with them and make a documentary on you and your life because that I think I would watch it. <laughs> HBO, why HBO? Why not? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe Netflix. <laughs> yeah, Netflix because yeah, you already name dropped them as well. I just thought of HBO because I just saw a, a good documentary on HBO. But So you kind of to piggyback off of Gabe to go a little bit more deeper. You know, it, it sounds like there's something that drives some kind of passion when it comes to obviously writing a book about this with your background. Through the years, it's kind of compiled, but was there one thing in that time frame that really struck out to you that was like, wow, this is something I need to really pay attention to and, and grow from, and, and this is what I care about kind of thing? Was there a moment like that personally? Yeah, there were a couple of moments here, and it was interesting because. There are two instances um, that I essentially jump out in memory. The first one was that I realized that as companies have grown, as hiring has sped up, as we have become more decentralized, there has been this dramatic slashing of training budgets, right? Time was when I joined Sprint back in 2002, and Sprint doesn't exist anymore as a company, so not really name dropping there. Uh, Sprint has been merged with other companies twice over. So I was essentially part of part of a three-month three-week training program. Before I was expected to do anything at all, there was a three-week heads down, we will teach you stuff mandate. Same thing happened when I joined my first company full-time after my graduation. When we hire people now, the expectation is they can add value right away. There's some osmosis-based learning, but there aren't really very many hands-on skills resources dedicated to people, unless that happens to be the specific team you hired for. And then when that happens, things like security and privacy often get learned when you make a mistake. The only way to learn is from your mistakes, but those mistakes are very prohibitive. The law GDPR that was sanctified by the EU back in 2018, that turns three in a few months, essentially has a 4% fine. But that 4% is not 4% of profits, it's 4% of revenue. So if an engineer makes a mistake, it stays on their record forever because people will know that you were at this company when this happened. And it's an expensive mistake to learn from, right? That's number one. The second thing is I've been at all these companies. I've learned from some of the smartest people, as I mentioned in my intro. I can actually write a book based on not just the application of these skills and learning these skills and applying them real time, but also here's an example of how I dealt with it. Here's how I did it wrong. Here's how I did it right. Here's how things you need to be aware of. These things might seem easy or intuitive in the short term, but here's how they might play out long term, right? I can bring both of these perspectives into one book. And there are so many things you do from a, from a privacy perspective in terms of how you do privacy reviews. How do you do deletion? How do you catalog your data? These are all things you do in the background without anyone ever knowing about them. But if you do them wrong, people will know about them. So how do you do them economically, intelligently, cohesively, collaboratively? Those are all learnings that you can pack into a book, make it interesting for engineers. And if they feel like they can get smarter, better, well, that's a win for them, right? The other thing is, if you can be good at your core job and also have some privacy chops, think about how marketable that makes you in today's economy, right? If, you have, yeah. if you're good at, for example, having AWS credentials and have privacy creds, that's a great job enhancer as well from a career perspective. So I feel like there's multiple wins to be had here. Awesome. Awesome answers. Um, <clears throat> let's kind of shift a little bit. Uh, can we talk a little bit about some of the details in, in your book? Um, I think you mentioned something around classifying data based on privacy risk. Um, who's usually responsible for this? 
So the answer to that question is everyone and no one. And it's one of those things where if something is everybody's responsibility, it becomes nobody's responsibility. Just like if, it, if everything is important, nothing is important, right? You have to prioritize. So historically, decisions around classification of data have been made from the perspective of risk. That is, what do we protect because it is supremely important, right? That's kind of how classification has been done. It's been this very defensive exercise. That then shifted over to the legal team when privacy became the topic du jour where there's laws in place, let's classify our data to make sure that we check that box. The book takes the argument a step further and says, let's understand what we have. Let's understand how it fits together individually and collectively. And let's rank this data based on risk from a privacy lens, and also from the perspective of what happens were this data to be misused. And then let's build security and privacy mechanisms in line with this data. So as an example, if you're talking about payments information, like let's assume you pay us as a company, we want to keep that data heavily locked away in a very, very non-reusable fashion unless you are a returning customer. Otherwise, the data gets deleted. If it's data about your behavior that enables us to give you ads that are personalized to your preferences and if you have your consent, that data needs to be kept under lock and key based on access control. That is, we understand who's accessing the data for what purposes and why. Is it individualized and personalized or is it more collective and contextual? So you have maybe a little more lenient access control. Is it data about information that is very common between you and 50,000 other people, in which case I can identify you uniquely and profile you? Maybe access to that data is a bit more open. So you can see even in this conversation, we have gone through different tiers of data sensitivity. And alongside that, we are creating access control privacy mechanisms that are much more tailored to the risk inherent to the data. Okay. So when that process takes place, it is very collaborative in nature. It is very continuous in nature. And the way I run it is I have my team, that is the privacy engineers, talk to the attorneys, talk to the security folks, talk to the engineers, the data scientists, the analysts, the product folks, and come up with a very continuous iterative process and essentially have that debate, have that argument. I remember in one of the companies that I worked in, we had so many comments on a document because people were so passionate that my browser crashed because there were so many comments. I had to shut down a few tabs because people have these ideas. So when you draw people into the process, you will have a much richer experience and the end outcome will be a classification and a data governance strategy that is much more representative of what actually happens when people use this data. Because remember when Target got in trouble in 2014 or 2014 over their breach, they were PCI compliant, which means you can do Mm -hmm. this stuff right and still get in trouble. So my vision for classification is do it in a way that represents reality, bring your team into the process, so that your classification and your privacy program is much more reflective of the real world and the risks go down in a material, meaningful fashion. I know that was a long answer, so I'll take a brief pause. No, it's good. Dave, you have anything on that for my next question? No, no, I don't. I, I don't even want to try and build on that one. I've, <laughs> yeah, no. Hot take. Um, how would, Nishant, how would one share data uh, with quantifiable privacy controls? That's a great question. So, you know, one of the open secrets about the tech world is that the only way you get good products is with data. Because, you know, when they say, why do people, there was this line in the West Wing where when Toby Ziegler and Sam Seaborn are talking to each other and Sam Seaborn played by Rob Lowe said, we're just preaching to the choir. Why do we do this? And Toby Ziegler played by Richard Schiff said, because otherwise they forget to sing. So reputation, data collection are the IT version of advertising on TV from back in the day, right? When I collect your data as an engineer, I know what you like, what you dislike. I know what you want to buy, what you might want to buy the next time, which is why when you go check out a retail website and you look at a product and don't buy it, you see an ad for that product a few hours later on a browser, right? That's basically saying, did you forget or do you want to buy it later on or something? Here's a gentle reminder. And, you know, a lot of times those ads convert, which is why you see those ads, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a mutual give and take to all of this. But to your question, how do you share data in a fashion that protects privacy? So there are several techniques. There are techniques to introduce fake data into the system so as to make sure that you can build profiles about users in terms of information that will make it germane for them based on your usage of the data, but also making sure that there's privacy controls. It's a bit like creating some noise so that the signal is not too overly discernible. There are techniques where you lump data together in aggregate fashion so that when people use that data or share that data, there are more privacy controls. So when I, as let's assume I'm working for a retail company and I share data with an advertising provider to say, if person A in this list is a customer for dog food, show them this ad. 
Okay. Now, a lot of people like dog food. If you live in San Diego or Mountain View or Portland, Oregon, where literally almost everybody it feels has a dog. But let's say you live in Elko, Nevada, where maybe people don't own dog don't own dogs as much, and it's possible that information about you that is being shared could uniquely identify you. Right. So what you do in that case is you add sort of increase the circumference of the geography. That is, you share data not just about people in Elko, but you throw in suburbs of Henderson or maybe parts of Las Vegas. I'm just making names up here. I don't know if those cities are close enough, but you add suburban areas from close by areas. And you say, do we have enough people in this cohort where there are enough people who like dog food, but who are also not living in the same geo so that people cannot be identified based on where they live? Because what you're trying to do at the end of the day is target somebody precisely based on their preference, but not make them uniquely identifiable should they be under jeopardy for some other reason. Like, let's assume you live in a country with a specious human rights record and you do not want the dictator to find out who they are, right? Because how would you feel if you ran an ad to make money off of somebody and then that put them at risk? I mean, I couldn't live yeah. with myself. No, no promotion, no stock option is worth putting somebody's life at risk, right? So how do you build a program that enables targeted outreach and personalization, but doesn't hurt somebody's privacy? So there are techniques like diversity, key anonymity, differential privacy, perturbation. There are techniques available and these will give you mathematical measurable techniques where you can understand or other mathematically measurable scores where you can check how identifiable is this person. And you, because these numbers exist, the decisions you make are very deterministic, which means you're making decisions based on data. So my recommendation would be for folks to read the book, look at the work Carnegie Mellon is doing. There's a bunch of other research online. It doesn't take as much time. And the funny thing is you can use this to improve data quality as well. So it's a win-win for everyone. We did have a guest on talking about differential privacy quite some time ago. Mm -hmm. Ian, uh, Ian from over at Tonic. There, yeah. Uh, yeah, we had some very interesting conversations there as well too about de-identifying personal data for, for those purposes. In you know, 2020, God bless us, it's behind us now, um, was an interesting year for data collection, right? You had a U.S. census, um, which meant lots of data collection, the ultimate in data collection from uh, a roundup perspective. Um, you had a pandemic, so you had a whole lot of data collection going on there as well, too. Um, and even better, personal health information data collection, so, you know, stack all of that on top of it. You had an election year, so you know data collection goes up in that time too, so that we can uh, we can target people for 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 political ads and all the other things. And although twenty twenty was not an it wasn't maybe that anomalous from a data collection standpoint, sans COVID, we do see some some interesting trends coming, which is you've got fewer and fewer companies that people are willing to share their data with, but they seem willing to share more data. I just wanted to get your take on that in particular. So I just want to make sure I break down the question a little bit better. Are you are you suggesting that there is more appetite for data sharing across the board? Are you seeing we're collecting more data because of the nature of where our society is at? Because there's a lot of implied angles to that question. So I want to make sure I'm asking the right <laughs> question. There. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me see if I can say it a little more straightforwardly. We've seen some trends. Uh, I've seen a few mm -hmm. articles and and a couple of research uh, papers point to trends where people are becoming more educated about data sharing if yes. even so incrementally. Um, but percentage-wise, it's huge, right? Um, yeah. So they're willing to share less data. They're willing to share their data with fewer companies. But with mm -hmm. the companies they are willing to share with, they're, they seem willing to share more data with those companies that they do trust. Yeah, and that's a fair point. So I'm glad you clarified that because there could have been, I was a little unsure about the interpretation of your last question. So yes, I feel like some companies have really seized this moment and my friends down in Cupertino come to mind uh, in terms of just building a brand around privacy and customer advocacy, right? And some companies are very, very forward thinking about being very user-facing and transparent about it. So when you look, when you look at congressional hearings about this topic, members of Congress disproportionately tend to ask about not the back end, but show me your dashboards, show me privacy controls, show me that you are educating users about what data you collect, right? Mm. Remember the show me state Missouri part, you know, we, we can't go to Missouri right now, but Missouri is everywhere. So when you can demonstrate publicly that you care about privacy, people notice. And when people notice, you get press. When you get press, more people notice. And then mm. companies get incentivized to build more of those tools, right? 
And what's interesting is that when companies have to get their privacy story right, they tend to invest more in the back end because that's where the data is. It's like, why do you rob a bank? Because that's where the money is, right? A lot of privacy problems happen at the back end. So I agree with you on the whole where a lot of companies are building their image and their narrative around user-facing privacy controls and privacy tools. And then that is in turn generating more trust and faith among customers who then want to share data and do business with those companies. And then those companies can potentially have a reputation for being very, very privacy centric. The flip side to that is that I would encourage people to look at the back end as well, because you can build user-facing dashboards and privacy toggles and machine learning, or rather banners, consent banners, things like that. You can do that. What I shouldn't, what you shouldn't do as a company is not remember the back end, which is, are you collecting too much data? Does, does your company have this open access policy where everybody can access everything endlessly over time? Do you hold on to data for too long on the expectation that will be useful down the road? So what you don't want to do is buy time and buy favors with people based on this cool new UI facing privacy narrative that you have and not clean up the back end. So Yes, customers will share data with you, but I feel like eventually you want to be able to have an honest conversation. So the trends are a little confusing to that point, Gabe, simply because we're in this weird year. I think anything starting from March 2020 to now should come with not just a pinch of salt, but like a whole warehouse of salt, (laughs) simply because we don't know what usage patterns are going to be like. We don't know what's going to happen to all this data that's being collected online with all of us at home. We don't know how much retail is going to stay online forever, right? We don't know what's, what vacations are going to look like this summer, this winter, this Christmas break, right? So I think any trend we're seeing right now in terms of data collection, customer behavior, probably is short-term at best. But I think what is not short-term is this need to balance this customer-facing narrative that companies are optimizing for, but also alongside the need to make sure that the backend gets cleaned up as well. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I wanted to go back one more question about your book. We don't want to give Tim any, uh, too much information because we want those, we want everybody to be interested in it, but why not? We're going to, we're going to give away a free copy. (laughs) That's true. We'll talk about that. One of these listeners today will get a free copy of the book. (laughs) Yes. So pay attention. You, you mentioned something about, I don't know if you briefly touched it, but about your privacy review program in the book. Do you want to kind of give a highlight of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, my hope is that people read that chapter. So I wrote this book for like four different audiences, right? And one of the audiences are the executive folks. There's there's material in this book for the engineers. There's something in it for people who are in the government regulatory side, because I want them to understand how hard it is to, to do privacy right, particularly for people like me who come in after a ton of work has already been done to make privacy hard. That is the data collection, things like that. This book is also aimed at people on the legal side of the house because people who write laws, people who represent companies in court need to understand how technical privacy works because in no other domain is there such a significant gap between the engineering implementation and the legal interpretation, right? So those three audiences are key. But the fourth audience here are the executives, people who make decisions around what gets built, what doesn't get built, people who sign the checks, people who prioritize, people who put together these mission statements where they say privacy and security are very, very important, just like they also say our employees are our most important resource. I want these folks to understand that this is a question of prioritization, I want them to understand that they need to be at the table and make some choices. Like when your privacy team comes to you and says, we need money to do privacy reviews, or we need money to build ML features to check for bias. You need to allocate that fund or or at least look at that request, because if you don't, it becomes some engineer's second priority, right? Their core responsibility is going to be building that feature to get maximal engagement. And their second priority is going to be to do privacy, right? And in this case, the second priority always loses. Because the entire structure of our corporate world is set up to ship products, grow engagement, spike revenue, get promoted, own a bigger product, and do the same thing. It's a circle that is aimed at repeating itself and reinforcing itself. So I need the executive folks to be at the table at the same time. So when I say a privacy program, I mean a comprehensive view of scores. Some scores that are numerical and some that are quantifiable in a more qualitative fashion, Mm -hmm. where I want these executives to be at the table. So I'm imagining like the CTO, the CEO, you know, the CFO, help them understand if we don't do this right, we might get locked out of a market. And we're seeing this happen, right? And I know the parlor example is a little different because that was not privacy, but you could end up in a situation where your reputation gets so tarnished, your brand gets so tainted 
that you may be locked out of the app store or you might not get to have third-party cookies via a browser that people use all over the world, what happens then? If your ability to connect with the customer is via somebody else's platform, that is the app store or the Chrome browser, if they decide that you are not doing the right thing from a privacy perspective, what do you do then? What if the VC walks away because you've become too tainted? So you need to understand these things from the get-go. And whether you're an attorney, you're an executive, or whether you are a lawmaker, you need to understand how privacy works. It cannot all be left upon the engineers. The engineers I work with are very smart. They want to do the right thing, but you want to make sure that the incentives line up for them to be able to do the right thing and they have the right resources as well. So I hope that privacy program chapter is read by all the executives, the people who make the financial decisions at our company. All right, you guys hear that? Any executives out there listening to the show? You're welcome from Nishant, of course. Uh, that's a good answer. Thank you. Um, this is a fun one. So if you, if you only had, let's say you're new to a company and you're coming in as the, the head of security and privacy or something like that, but let's say you only have a, a budget of a hundred dollars. And I think Gabe, did we knock it down to 50 <laughs> just to challenge it even more? Um, we, did, but we, we could stay at a hundred. <laughs> if no, you only had a, no, Nishant had a head start. That's why we knocked it down. <laughs> <laughs> so if you only had that amount of money for a budget to start your security and privacy program, what, where would you start? So if I have 50 bucks, the first thing I would do, and this might sound counterintuitive because a lot of my conversations about this topic tend to go in the direction of strategy versus think big, think long-term. But I would take five bucks at the very beginning and invest it towards incident response because what happens is typically when you start a privacy program, you find out things that are broken, right? And this is why privacy programs struggle because you end up thinking big, but you end up getting buried small because a bunch of small issues just end up consuming all your time. So dedicate some money towards incident response. So somebody's specific responsibility, it is going to be to deal with incoming traffic from the get-go, pent up issues from the past, mistakes from before, legal questions that have been waiting for a while. So make that investment, make it early. You'll either make that late and have to spend more or spend five bucks. So spend five bucks now or spend 25 tomorrow. I'm going to spend five bucks now. Then I'm going to spend 20 bucks to hire engineers to build tooling. Make sure that these people can build centralized tools. So if every team has to delete customer data after the customer leaves the company, I could either have 50 or 55 different teams across the company on their own deletion or I could have one team builder deletion tool that accounts for at least 45 teams out of that use case. And I would rather have the centralized approach because if you build a tool that is central that everybody can use, you've now made life easier for 90% of your teams. And then you can dedicate your energy energies to the remaining 10% that need some bespoke separate help, right? So I would invest 20 bucks right there. So now I'm at 25. I would invest 15, so that takes us to 40. I would invest 15 in evangelism and education, make sure that there is sufficient awareness across the company on what needs to happen, how they need to do this, what they need to be accountable for, have some shared ownership, et cetera. And then I would account for 10 bucks, or rather out of the remaining 10 bucks, I would account for five bucks for training with the attorneys. I would wanna make sure that there is money spent to ensure that the legal arm of the company and the engineering arm of the company work hand in hand. So when the legal arm of the company interprets privacy laws, the engineering arm knows what to do and how to build it. When the engineering arm builds solutions and has discoveries, they have a channel to go back to the legal team and say, here's what we found, here's what you need to know about where we're at, and here's what you might be able to represent with externally facing, right? So down to my last five bucks, I would account for a solid privacy review program where when engineers across the company think of something cool to build, right? They have all these amazing ideas. They write their requirements, stocks, things like that. I want to dedicate investment to make sure that they have privacy help at the very beginning. So privacy should become a feature, right? So join us at the whiteboard and we will make sure that you build privacy into your controls right away. So as an example, I'm building out this amazing database that can track users real time. Well, how do I make sure that access to that database is logged? So that engineers get an email saying, by the way, we know that you're looking at this data. We assume you have a good requirement. If not, stop looking right away. Something along those lines, right? So you build those controls early in the process so that you don't have to jam them in later on right before the product is about to ship out. And I would also use part of that $5 to bring the legal team in in case they need that context. So I would spread the wealth around a little bit, but you notice the biggest expenditure is going to be in building tooling and training and evangelism. But you also have enough investment to build the connecting tissue because and that's really important, folks, because if you get nothing else, get this. A lot of us are so disconnected from each other, even before COVID, 
that were so siloed that we don't know what the other person's doing. So you want to invest some money to ensure that these teams are talking to each other. That's probably one of the best answers we've gotten. I mean, not to bash anybody else that's been on that's answered that, but that's it's fascinating. Yeah, very in depth. Yeah. Work with your feet, right? If they see that important decisions are being made, they'll show up to the meeting because you are either at the table or you are on the table being consumed, right? So when you make decisions around what ships and what doesn't ship or what get, gets prioritized, what doesn't get prioritized, people will show up. And I've always, whenever, whenever I've had these cross-functional privacy programs, they go through these phases. First, people oppose them, then they ignore them, then they acquiesce, then they embrace them. So if you are out there listening to this podcast and you are seeing resistance, you are in the game. You want to make sure that you keep that you keep pushing because never once, even at this point in my career, have I managed to land alignment right away. It always takes some persuasion. So do not lose hope. Do not lose heart if you are in the same shoes as I've been at one point or the other. That's great. Um, not to name drop, but you know, in your past, mm-hmm. you've worked at a lot of iconic mm-hmm. companies. And I know that you've taken a lot of amazing experiences and growth. Um, I'm just curious, which, which one of those stops do you feel helped you the most in your, in your journey so far? You know, it's funny because it's hard to pick anyone. And I know it's going to sound like a cop-out because all these companies gave me amazing opportunities. I've worked with some of the smartest people in the industry. And at, in time, I managed to rip off the robe of imposter syndrome that covered my body completely so I could swim naked with my self-confidence a little more. So (laughs) rather than naming a specific company or a specific person, I want to dedicate this book and this moment to all these engineers whose jobs, whose careers, whose promotions depended upon collecting more and more data, not deleting it and maybe even keeping things from me, but they came to me and said, hey, we shouldn't be doing this, but I need to convince my manager, can you come with me? Or I need to convince my SVP, can you help me make this deck? You know, some of these engineers were such that they had been with the company for a long time and their best laid plans were going to get appended because of my privacy plans. Or sometimes they were new engineers whose promo packages or whose stock options depended upon shipping something new. And against their own self-financial interest, short-term financial self-interest, they came to me and said, hey, let's work on this plan together because I want to make sure this is a one-time pain process and not something that happens to the next person that comes along. So I feel like those lessons that I've learned, sometimes away from the press, you know, sometimes away from the eyes of the executive team. And, you know, people make a name for themselves by writing op-eds or writing books or appearing on podcasts, no pun intended. But the real heroes in the privacy story are the engineers who do the right thing every single day. And I want to call them out a little bit because, you know, it's always easy to bash on Silicon Valley or Wall Street or the pharma industry. But, and yes, sometimes these players behave badly, but there are also people who do the right thing behind the scenes. And you, it's hard to prove a counterfactual because those people never get named because those mistakes are not made and therefore never fixed. But I want to call that out a little bit. I lear- I've learned so much from them and I, I take my values, my integrity, my advocacy and my practicality from them. And that lingers in the memory longer than any one executive that I worked with. Cheers to the engineers. Yeah, big round of applause. I'll add that in um, right now. So cheers to them. Um, yeah. I've got a question before we uh we, we push on maybe it's a nice bridge or segue into it mm-hmm. but uh you know we tend to hold hackathons and in, in the uh the the developer side of the world the product side of the world have you ever held one but like a privacy hackathon internally with with your architects and engineer and if you haven't if you would hold one what would that look like you know i haven't actually held one dedicated to privacy what i have been able to do is seed privacy ideas into engineering hackathons because you know the way i've done this game and maybe there's other more intelligent ways to do this is when when we do privacy events we do them to showcase the work we're doing so they they can get adopted because the challenge often tends to be you can build these central privacy tools but if teams don't adopt them if teams don't use them the work doesn't go anywhere right mm-hmm. so the key i've tried to do is essentially run privacy hackathons that are focused on having people look at what we're doing and then see their ideas into work that they're doing to make it part of their hackathons. But I think you've given me a good idea on maybe making a privacy hackathon happen where yes. non-privacy folks and the privacy folks work together and essentially build that bridge. So, you know, you what happens often in my field is that you talk to people who are just like you, who've been fighting the same battles. So there's a level of conf- confirmation bias and 
uh, which I call it homogeneity that takes into place. And I, when I come to a show like this one, when I talk to people on the outside, I learn something new. So thank you so much for humbling me and making me better. So I'm, this is a lesson learned. I'm going to put that on my calendar for next week to talk to my team. I would love to hear how that goes, quite frankly, because I'd like to run one myself. So <laughs> keep me in mind. I'd even be happy to participate if you, you, you'd welcome an outsider. I'd love to see. I have this. your email address, Gabe. So yes, promise you do. Me. Indeed. Challenge accepted. Yes. Um, all right. So uh, one last question here before we wrap it up and um, get into the fun section. Where, where do you where do you anticipate? Uh, and this might be something that's in your book, but where do you anticipate privacy as a whole and security together is kind of going? Where do you see that yeah. that world going in the next few years? You know, there's two different tracks here. One is we have a different administration in town now. So there's going to be some movement around maybe doing something from a regulatory legislative perspective with privacy. I mean, people often talk about how California, the state, the world's, I think, sixth largest economy has a privacy law. The EU has one. Why shouldn't the US have one as well to protect our customers? Uh, I'm not sure how many senators would vote for it or if we have 60 votes because that's what it takes to pass laws these days. So there's that conversation happening about what is a good law, what is possible, will it actually make a difference, will it be something that companies can implement, will it indeed do the right thing by companies big and small and customers alike, so there's that conversation. But then there is a separate parallel conversation happening that is really fascinating where I think, Gabe, you touched on it earlier, where because of the level of awareness around data exchanges, around harms, around value propositions, around respective powers and rights, there is a significant conversation about why wait for the government? Why not just do it at the grassroots level? So you have companies making decisions around data collection, around consent, around what is the right level of visibility of data, et cetera. Where that goes is going to be pretty fascinating because that's where customers, companies, app developers, engineers all get into the mix and it's a much more collaborative process. And I, what I think is going to happen is there's going to, the second track is going to go a lot faster than the first one. We're going to be talking about this in Q2, Q3 of this year. And then at some point, COVID is going to be behind us and the administration and the regulators will start looking at this field much more seriously. And the combination of what has been happening at GDPR and CCP on the legislative side and this dialogue between corporations and customers and advocates in the media on the more grassroots side is going to coalesce into potentially something that is much more codified. I think that's where we are headed. But I'm glad we're headed in a direction where there is more clarity because when you build privacy programs out of ambiguity, that's A, expensive, B, sometimes counterproductive, and C, very hard to quantify the wins, right? So my hope is we get to something that's a bit more formal. So everybody feels like, A, we're doing something, but we're doing something that actually makes a positive difference. Awesome. Um, Nishant, do you have anything to add uh, that we didn't bring up um, that you'd like to add before we get into your secrets and... <laughs> Pick your brain no, a little more. <laughs> conversation. I want to be at your disposal. I, I spend too much time telling people what to do. So I want to be uh, completely hands off on this one. <laughs> okay, perfect. Let's get to know you a little bit more. Um, let's start out with this one. You already know, I feel like you know it's coming. What, what's your biggest pet peeve? So this is not so much a pet peeve. It's more a concern about the direction of our world and our society where, you know, you hear things about tech clash. You hear about people not trusting the media, the government, things like that. You know, talk about Silicon Valley not doing right by people and not whatnot. This conversation, I think, is about this general change that has taken place in our society in the last 20 years or so, ever since the tech boom happened and then busted, where these distinctive aspects about us in terms of how community, country, and clan have been erased. So time was when I would go to visit my family in Mumbai in December when I was in school in Missouri, it felt different to go there. Like everything looked different. Now, when I get into an airplane, the ads on that little tube that connects you to the airplane are very similar when I get on and they're very similar when I get off. And there's 3,000 miles in between, but similarity on both sides of that tube. And because people feel like their distinctiveness, their uniqueness has been lost, there is a sense of distrust. There is a sense of fear. And it is in that context that we see things like people not trusting each other, people being mean to each other online, uh, that when you lose that sense of uniqueness, you lose that sense of identity. And that is go that goes back to your question, Cameron, about uh, engineers not understanding that there is a real person behind the data. The personalized element is lost. So I feel like this conversation about privacy around user trust should be seen in the context of that larger societal change that's taking place. 
And I feel like privacy, those of us working in that field, those of us who care about it, have a chance to do something right. And by showing that good privacy can be good business, if you do privacy right, you can make more money, bring more users in, make them more interested in your business, keep them for longer, make it cheaper for them, make it cheaper for you, and then have that larger social conversation. So I feel like something's got to give about the way we're operating as a country where people don't trust vaccines, they don't trust masks, and we can't go on like this as a society for too long, right? There's things have got to change. So I feel like those of us who work in privacy have an opportunity to do things right from the get-go and really make that step forward about fixing our society a bit. So it's not quite a pet peeve. It's an opportunity that I feel like we have to take at this point. And I feel like we were not talking about it. And I'll be putting in a chapter if the publishers and editors agree to do it towards the end of the chapter so that people don't just think of this as a tooling issue, but they think of this as an opportunity for society, society as a whole. That's great. More in depth than most people would answer that question. And I love it. I love the way you think. What's the weirdest text message that you've ever received? It's not so much a text message. It's a WhatsApp message. You know, when my parents visited me <laughs> for the first time I lived, as I said, in a small town and there weren't that many grocery stores. So they would, I would take them to Walmart and everybody in my college apparently went to Walmart in the evenings because it was Kirksville, Missouri, a town of 6,000 people. You should go sometime. And that was a social hangout place, right? So even now when my mom gets a discount coupon for Walmart, she sends it to me and there is not a Walmart close by. And I do most of my shopping on Amazon online because I'm too mm -hmm. lazy unless it's to Costco. But if it's a $2 off coupon for one of those like packets of donuts, I don't eat donuts anymore because I'm, you know, I, my metabolism isn't quite what it used to be. So things that I could chow down in college, I can't anymore, but my mom still sends me those. So, and she sends it to me via WhatsApp every few days. And I've told her not to, but <laughs> parents are going to parent, right? <laughs> you get any coupons for kombucha, you go ahead and forward them to me though. I'll Yes. Take some of those. I will tell my mom when she wakes up at 7 p.m. our time. <laughs> I was also going to say, if uh, I use, we use Uber Eats a lot, uh, you know, this past year, like probably everybody else. So, um, yeah, love that. Yeah, thank you. I don't think it's lazy. I just think it's the new normal. And it is. Yeah. It, it's a little more expensive, but yeah. it's worth it for the convenience. What To, to the donut, go back to the donut thing. Um, what, what's your favorite snack? Um, well, <laughs> I like the original glazed Krispy Kreme donut. That's what I like. Uh, I used to be able to run a lot more than I do now. So I'm down to carrots, uh, raisins. I like uh, triscuits and cheese. Those are some of my go-to snacks. Super Bowl's coming up on Sunday. Mm -hmm. A lot of triscuit and cheese consumption. I don't drink anymore. So I'll just be chowing it down with some ginger ale. There you go. Suggest suggestion. Throw in some wasa once in a while. Mix it up on that. Uh, Good idea. Triscuits. Yeah, I love me some wasa. You know what? I will have some meatloaf. Let's have some meatloaf. You want some? I knew you'd go. Hey, mom! The meatloaf! We want it now! So favorite snack, but what's your what's your guilty pleasure? I guess besides the donut. What could you just eat no matter what? And, oh, and it's not good for you. Costco cheesecake. My goodness, the the plans <laughs> you have. There should be some, I hope it's like this big. there's a Mount Rushmore of people who make good dessert. Just saying that out loud. I think yeah. we all just gained a pound. Like, <laughs> But that cheesecake is so good. Like the, the, the white frosting they put on the side, it is so sweet. And their graham cracker crust is pretty awesome too. I mean, and there's a Costco only two miles away. So I should really stop talking about yeah. that. <laughs> Do not. My car has plenty of gas in it. So, <laughs> And we already know that it's probably the size of four normal size cheesecakes because everything there is double triple oh, size. i think one costco cheesecake has 16 slices so i think 16 cheesecake factory cheesecakes fused together as one costco cheesecake that seems about right yeah but it yeah. is delicious it is insane pro, pro food tip too if you go to a restaurant like cheesecake factory and the menu is as big as it is probably doesn't mean that the food is that good or that it's very fresh yeah if it Although has a smaller menu cheesecake i'll say that yeah, they do have good cheesecake, obviously. But, you know, we only live once. That's true, you do. Always always enjoy the little things. Yeah. Um, Although you won't like long if you keep eating all that cheesecake, but that's a different <laughs> Um, If you could be invisible for one day, what would you do with that day? I would break into a high-kill animal shelter and rescue as many dogs as possible. Yes, I'm right with you. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Forget invisible. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. <laughs> Maybe the president will pardon me, right? Here's what we'll do. We'll leave Cam out front with the car running. Give him some bail money just in case. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, but don't you can't don't they take your belongings? You can't use what you have. That's I don't know how it works. You the bail money though. That's why you get the money. I don't know how it Wait, works. You stay outside. No. Stay outside, Ken. Okay. Okay. <laughs> do I have a weapon? Do I do I get no, a gun? Uh, okay. No, no, that, that starts getting sketchy at that point. No, this is uh, benevolent, uh, maybe real good move. Maybe just like a little net, just nope. something to protect myself. All right, a stick. Nope. Yeah. Shield, a shield. How about that? Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> you will have about a hundred puppies with you. That's all the that's all the protection you need. Actually, I was thinking older dogs because puppies get adopted pretty quickly. That's it's true. older dogs that need the rescue. So That's for those true, of you yeah. who adopt an old dog, don't go to a breeder. Adopt from shelters, especially older dogs that get put down too often. And older cats. I've only ever had older cats. Too. I've never, ever adopted a kid. Yeah. Show them some. Yeah. That's a, yeah. Good shout out for that. People, yeah, so if you're feeling guilty, go do it. You're going to have to tag the ASPCA in this one. Let's, uh, let's make sure people go empty those, those kennels some more. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, what, what, what's your favorite TV show? Oh, Seinfeld never gets old. I mean, I, it's not contemporary. Uh, so it's these days it's either Seinfeld or some British who done it on Amazon prime because you easily get lost into those. Those are so well-made, but if I want to just like forget about the woes of the world and just laugh, Mulligatani soup and Seinfeld and Newman and trying to get extra cash for cans by driving to Michigan. That's the way to go. It just holds up so well. Like it it's literally, hold, oh my God, it's fabulous. I mean, full disclosure, I've probably watched five episodes this week without exaggeration. Yeah, I know. Although I will say this, that when I do feel a sense of somber-minded self-righteousness, I also go to the West Wing. Aaron Sorkin never uh, gets older. Yeah. So. I have a suggestion for you if you have Amazon um, Prime and I think you might be interested in it. It's a show called Upload. Yes. You ever heard of it? I've heard of it. It's, it's on my list. Yep. Right. Check it out. It's a good one. It's futuristic. It's uh, really well done and it's very, very good humor. It's, I think some of the same writers that did Scrubs um, was nice. a part of this, this uh, project. So anyways, um, let's see here. Let me get a little more weird on you. <clears throat> Ooh, hold on a second. Sorry. I'll cut this out if I have to. <laughs> Who edits anything these days anyway? He says that, but nothing hits the uh, the cut. No, I, I take some time. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I got one. What 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 do you think people will say at your funeral? Oh my goodness. Or, he should have stopped at the second slice of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I tend to live so much for the day that I don't even think about when the day ends. I think I don't know what people will say. I know what they will say, actually. They'll say he was way too impatient, which would be true, guilty as charged. What I hope they say is there was a purpose to it all. I can't control what they say, but I can control what I do and what in turn would make them say something different uh, because it's so easy to keep working, keep charging forward. But if people understand that there is a sense of reason behind it, uh, I think it's all worth it at that point. You know what you got to do, Nishan, because you can control what they say. They offer these services where you can pay someone to in the future show up at your funeral. And give a eulogy that you wrote. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was, have you seen this movie called Waking Ned Divine? It's this Irish movie from the late 90s where the town. So it's basically a dude buys a lottery ticket in a town and he dies and people get together and essentially one of them pretends to be him and they try to claim the rewards. There was this iconic funeral scene in that movie where the guy who's pretending to be Ned, this guy's best friend says, I, he's, he's my best friend, but I never remember telling him that he was a good person. So it feels like, and he also said that how nice would it be to go to your own funeral to hear all the nice things people say about you after you're gone. So if the way to make that happen is to pay people, maybe I'm sure somebody in Silicon Valley is thinking of a startup. It works sort of, on it right uh, now. <laughs> you know, positive uh, memories uh, in an instant or something. I'm yeah. sure they can come up with a snappier name. Done. A um, couple more here. Uh, would you rather have a pet dinosaur or a dragon? Oh my goodness. I would rather have a pet dinosaur because one of my fondest memories as a kid was watching Jurassic Park with my mom. So it would go back in time a bit. So it would take me back to 1993. So yes, pet dinosaur. Pet dinosaur. I always assumed dragons were dinosaurs. Mm. No. Okay. They can be mistaken for, for dinosaurs, but they're they're definitely yeah. not, at least unless someone wants to prove us wrong. But I mean, I'm no dragon expert here, but uh, they are 
at least cousins to avians, which are the closest links we have to dinosaurs. And they are very old and scary. Anyway, moving on, moving on. It's too much <laughs> dinosaur talk. <clears throat> if you had a time machine and you could travel anywhere, Nishant, where would you go? So I would go back to, you know, when I was a kid in Mumbai, the monsoons in July, June timeframe, when it's like really rainy, the air cools down. There weren't as many cars in the road. There weren't as many tall buildings where I lived. And you could literally see the rain coming towards you. We lived by the ocean and you could see sort of the landscape change color as the rain, it appeared, walked towards you. And I would finish my homework by roughly 4, 4.30 in the evening. So I could sit in the balcony and watch the rain come in. And I felt so tranquil. There were no cell phones. I didn't care much about TV at the time. And I wasn't particularly good at sports because I'm too small myself. So I would love to go back in time and just relive that memory if only for a second, because man, those times ain't coming back. Oh. And and what um, what's your TP situation like? I think we got to talk about this for a second. What, uh, when your toilet paper, when you put it on the roll... <laughs> Is it over or under when you go to grab it? So I recently answered this question in a, in a different context. Uh, I think it was the same context. I think it's over, but usually I'm not persnickety about it because I just want to get it on because you know that's <laughs> not usually my, one of my more discernible moments. So the key is to be functional and expedient rather than uh, very, very perfect about things. So yeah, that's I'm an over guy, but happy to be corrected, Gabe. I, I can see I'm, I've piqued your interest. No, no, I'm an over guy. You, the judges, they passed. Yeah, there's only one right answer to this. There's one exception that the not. judges were able to make, and that is if you have uh, animals. I guess you've got one of those cats that like wipe swipe it. I'm sure, <laughs> maybe. Cats are jerks. They'll find a way. There was, That's true. There was just a meme on Twitter that was doing the rounds a few days ago that says, "Confirmed uh, scientists confirmed that cat would can't. This cat cannot pass COVID, but would have given the chance." So yes. yes. <laughs> True. That's good. (laughs) Um, One last question. Uh, Is there one, I'm curious of your answer. Is there one app that you use a lot, but you don't like? You know, I've always tried to answer these questions straight up, but there's somebody working on that app behind the scenes. So I'm going to pass on this one if that's okay. (laughs) That's one of those things where uh, it's easy to sit on the outside and complain, but you have no idea how much work somebody's doing behind the scenes. So I'm just out of respect for somebody who might be working hard, whose day I would ruin by naming that app. Um, how about that be a little secret that we talk about once the recording button's off? That's fine. And it, since we're on it, we'll leave it with this. What's your favorite app that's actually something you can, you know, that some, a lot of people might not know about? So because I'm going to give you two answers to that. A lot of my colleagues are currently working on the Uber app. So I love that because obviously mm-hmm. something we all work on it. It's hard for me to be objective about something that has my blood and sweat and tears in it. And of course, people I like and work with. So that's number one. But mm-hmm. beside that, I also, I like the New York Times app. It's uh, it's so easy to maneuver. I, I don't know if I'm approving of the app more than I'm approving of the product and the news and the depth of journalism that goes into it. And it's hard these days to find a source of journalism that has everything in it. And I rely upon the times quite a bit. So that's going to be an easy answer for me right there. Awesome. Well, Nishant, thank you so much for your time, for coming on here, for, you know, just opening up to us and our listeners. And I just think, uh, I think you're great. And I really appreciate what you do. And I just hope you continue the journey and I hope your book does really well. And again, all our listeners out there, we're going to be giving out uh, one free book each episode um, coming up each week. So pay attention, email us, and we will uh, announce the winners on, on the next episodes. So Speaking again, of, though, before, before we actually close out, if you would, what is the name of your book? I don't know if we ever actually stated the name. Yes. Thank you so much, Gabe. The name of the book is Privacy by Design. It should be out sometime later on this summer. Thank you. Excellent. Looking Perfect. forward to it. Awesome. Well, Nishant, thank you again. And, uh, I know you'll they'll definitely be back on this show. Absolutely. Hopefully, thank you. At least a third time. Yep. <laughs> Easily. I'm sure. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week and to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I know that 
there are millions of other shows and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends. Drop that out.